Hi, uh, I'm Rishi Kundi. I'm here with Benny Zheng, the uh, Chair of Ophthalmology and Visual Sciences at the University of Maryland. Uh, and we are going to be talking about ocular trauma, which is something that we don't really talk about very much in the Trauma Critical Care Fellowship or in emergency medicine. How are you today, Benny? I'm good. Thanks for having me, Rishi. It's of good course. to see you. So I'm going to ask questions from my normal perspective, which is kind of that of a, a pleasant idiot. Um, when it comes to ophthalmology. First of all, I had no idea that ocular trauma or ocular traumatology was an entire subfield, but apparently it is because I found an entire textbook devoted to it and it was like 600 pages. So as a trauma surgeon, let's start with this. I have a patient who has an obvious injury to the eye. I immediately start collecting data to present to my ophthalmological consultant who obviously can't be at the hospital all the time. What information uh, do I need to collect, and how should I describe the injury over the phone? Yeah, it's a really good question. I really love the opportunity to be here because um, it's not just you. And I think most people in the U.S., having gone through medical school, maybe if they're lucky, had a week of ophthalmology in their entire four years of medical school. And that includes the basic sciences. So you're not alone for sure. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to explain all the nuances to, to, to someone who hasn't had the background, um, but we definitely appreciate your interest. And when we think about ocular trauma, I don't know if I would call it a, its own subspecialty. We have nine subspecialties, did you know that? We're going to get to that. Okay. <laughs> and I don't know that anybody's actually called trauma a subspecialty, but it, definitely there are textbooks devoted to this, and there's, you know, you know, symposia at our at our meetings that talk just about traumatology um, for the eye. So, you know, when we get a call from, let's say, the trauma service um, or another place, emergency department, um, you know, the things that we think about are one of three major things. Is it, first of all, a rupture globe, globe rupture? Uh, secondly, is it a orbital fracture? And the third would be like a retrobulbar hemorrhage. Um, causing the pressure to go up really high that could cause blindness, you know, uh, in a short period of time. Those are the three trauma-related things that make us get alarmed, right? A corneal abrasion from trauma doesn't really, doesn't really scare us, but some sort of mechanism of injury that would make us worry is what we want to know first. So if it's blunt trauma to the eye, then we're thinking about possible globe rupture, possible hemorrhage, possible uh, orbital wall fractures. Okay. Um, if it's a, you know, a sharp, uh, let's say, a, a, a knife to the eye, um, you know, glass to the eye because they're in a bar fight, things like that, we think, you know, ruptured globe is probably likely. So let, let, I'm going to interrupt you for a minute. Uh, my understanding prior to preparing for this interview was that the eye was a single balloon filled with magic. As it turns out, there are actually different parts to the eye and there is very little magic involved. Now, when you talk about a globe rupture, um, are you talking about a violation of the entire external eye with, not to sound coarse, but stuff clearly leaking out? Or does it refer to a specific chamber of the eye? There's definitely no magic. But at any point, if this uh, globe or ball, however you want to look at it, has, which has two chambers, the front and the back, um, has been cut open, whether it's a puncture or if it's been sliced in half, um, as was the case last weekend for me, then um, 
it is a globe rupture. Okay. Um, but the management obviously differs, right? If it's just a puncture, it's much less severe than if it was sliced open. Okay. Like happened to us. So some things um, are pretty obvious if there's something sticking out of the eye or if the eye is open and there's a globe rupture with stuff leaking out, as I said, the technical term. But very often we see patients who come in with just dried blood on their eye. The eye is swollen shut. How aggressive should we be initially in trying to open the eyelid to find something to describe to you? Yeah. So that's a good question because usually the pet peeve for us when we get a call from any service is, you know, what's their vision? And then nobody gives us a vision. No one's checked the vision. But in this particular circumstance, if you look and the eyelid is so swollen and you're afraid of trying to pry open the eye, then don't. <laughs> but please do tell us what uh, might have been done, like a CT scan, for example. Um, is there, are there over-the-wall fractures? Does the eye look deflated? Because that would tell us that maybe there is a rupture globe. Okay. So that would be helpful. Is there, is there a preferred imaging modality? CT scan, obviously, is what we usually get. Yeah. Contrast, no contrast? No, that, that doesn't, doesn't really matter. Thin cuts around the orbit okay. um, so that we can see um, is, is what we really care about. Remember, you know, we, I know people always talk about stuff like oozing out of the eye. You know, the eye is only like three or four cc's of fluid that can actually ooze out. So <laughs> once it's oozed, it's all flat. <laughs> the eye has a, it has a significant, it's very intimidating even to a surgeon. <laughs> well, blood usually isn't from the eyeball inside the eyeball. Okay. Right? Blood can be from a cut blood vessel on the conjunctiva. Okay. And it's just bleeding and oozing out. But actual fluid that oozes out of the eye, the jelly is about three cc's worth and it comes out as a blob. And the front of the eye is 250 microliters. Once it's out, it's out. There's no more. <laughs> It'll keep getting made, but it's just going to be a slow trickle. So you, you spoke of blood. Let's go back to the retrobulbar uh, hemorrhage. So is that something that is immediately obvious? How much of a priority is that? Uh, is that something that like an emergency room physician should be prepared to deal with? I mean, I guess that that depends on, you know, what particular situation you're in. Um, you know, every emergency room is different. But I think that most emergency room physicians aren't going to want to do a cantholysis uh, cathotomy where they basically cut the ligaments on the side of the eye to allow the blood behind the eyeball to come out. It is an emergency because the pressure can build so that the um, pressure inside the eye is so high that blindness can occur, you know, in, you know, in, in several hours. Okay. And how does how does this present clinically? Do you see, can you necessarily see the the hematoma from the visible? No, you can't. What you'll see is, um, uh, you know, people always talk, talk about compartment syndrome in the arm as everything's very tense, right? Mm -hmm. So the eye, will, the orbit will be very tense. The eye will be proptotic and sticking out. And then when you try to push, it'll be very, very tense. And the patient will complain about pain and decreased vision. Now, sometimes the eyelids may be swollen shut if they were like assaulted and hit. And that's what caused the bleeding behind the eye. And the swollen, so you can't actually see all this stuff. Um, you know, checking a pressure would help, but Sometimes checking your pressure can be difficult in these circumstances. Okay. But a scan, mm -hmm. a scan would tell you that there's a hemorrhage. Okay. So let's talk about vision loss. Um, in doing my prep for this interview, I saw something called NLP, which I believe stands for non-light perceiving or no light perception. It's no light perception, but you can call it whatever you want. Most ophthalmologists will know what that is. Actually, all ophthalmologists but there, So there are degrees of vision loss. Yes. So I have a patient who says, I can't see anything. It's all dark. That's pretty simple to, to communicate. What about somewhere in between there? How do I tell you? Well, he says it's kind of blurry. Um, 
or he's he has near vision is there any kind of precision that you're looking for there well i mean ideally you have that little pocket eye chart right um but but the tricky thing is right you you have somebody who um let's say they're 60 years old and they don't have the glasses or reading glasses on them then they can't see that eye chart right, right. um and so that could be a challenge and that will frustrate your your consultant when you call and say you know they don't have their glasses and i can't check their vision but at the very least i think holding up a few fingers going far away standing like 10 feet away and seeing if they can count fingers you say if you were to say something like, well, he can count fingers at 10 feet, that would sound very, very intelligent to the ophthalmologist. Really? Really appreciate that. There's nothing I want more than to sound intelligent to an ophthalmologist. <laughs> um, so when you come in and assess the injury, uh, is there any kind of scoring system or prognostic system that you use when you're then talking to us about what our possible range of outcomes are or the patient or the patient's family? That's a good question because I know that lots of surgical fields have these grading systems and it gives you an idea of what's going to happen at the end. We, we, we don't actually have anything practical to use for this. And so we basically, when we see a ruptured globe and take a patient to surgery, we consent them for possibility of losing the eyeball. Okay, even though it is highly, highly unlikely that we would ever take the eyeball at, the, at that time. But let's say for the patient I had last weekend, um, the eyeball was cut in half. We knew it. And we basically said, this patient couldn't see before and will not be able to see after. But the goal is to preserve the eyeball because losing an eyeball psychologically, if you've seen in studies, is like losing an arm. It's like losing a limb. And so nobody wants to wake up and lose that limb. So if we can preserve it, it also gives them a better cosmetic outcome later if they need a prosthetic. Aside from cosmesis and psychological sense of you know unity, um, is there a level of function that's acceptable short of full sight? Well, I think that's, that's the eye of the beholder, right? <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't help it. Um, you know, 2200 is um, legally blind, right? And if a person was injured in one eye and their other eye is 2020, anything short of 2020 is probably going to seem suboptimal, right? But we'll help them. Okay. But if they're 2200 in their other eye and they're legally blind and this was their one good eye, then they'll take whatever they get okay, and they'll have to work with it. But 2200 is the, the legal blind. Okay. Do you know where, the, where the, this 2200, 2020 business comes from? I'm going to make a guess and I take the risk of embarrassing Go myself. Go ahead. Go ahead. I believe 2200 means that at 20 meters, uh, feet. Someone, 20 feet, someone has the visual resolution that a normal person would have at 200 feet. Wow. You are the only non-ophthalmologist I've ever met, and even in medicine, that actually could tell me that. I swear to God I knew that before. <laughs> <laughs> you need to give yourself more credit about this intelligence business. Well, all right. All right. So aside from, from having, obviously, a prolonged course of attempted salvage, um, is perhaps not as cosmetically acceptable as simple replacement with a prosthetic. But aside from that, are there any other risks associated with a prolonged attempt at salvage? Well, you know, if, if you're talking about salvage, meaning keeping the eyeball, mm -hmm. even though it doesn't see, mm -hmm. um, you know, preserving the eyeball is the first thing that we do. You know, we closed the eye last weekend, and I said this patient is never going to be able to see again, um, but we're going to keep it. 
and then we'll figure out once everything is is done what they want to do with this. Chances are people will want to have a prosthetic placed in and without having taken the eyeball out, the cosmetic action in terms of the, the, the prosthetic moving with the other eye so it doesn't look as much like you have a prosthetic, much better if the muscles are still around the, the globe. And so there's, there's a term called evisceration versus enucleation. Enucleation is taking the whole eye out, cutting all the muscles off and, and everything like that. Right. Evisceration is what it sounds like, which is actually scraping all the contents out, out from inside the eyeball, but keeping the shell, the white okay. shell. And then putting a, 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 an implant in there and then a conformer on top of it. And that allows the muscles to still move. So if you peg a, a prosthetic to it, then it actually moves. So they actually will have conjugate gaze or appear to have uh, conjugate-ish? Yes, ish. I would say ish. <laughs> so tell me about this case last weekend. It sounds like pretty interesting. Well, you know, it was apparently a baseball bat to that side of the face. So there were orbital fractures and there was a ruptured globe. And the globe, you know, you think about, it's hard to pop, like, let's say a basketball. Mm -hmm. You really have to give it a lot of force to pop it. But the eye has a couple of weak spots on it inherently, anatomically. And so if you hit it with enough force, it's gonna pop at those weak spots. So at the limbus and behind the rectus muscles. Um, And that's what actually happened. And it was basically cut in half completely. It was like, you know, like an egg just cracked in half. And so we sewed it together, but, you know, stuff was coming out and that shouldn't have come out. <laughs> do you, do you replace the vitreous? No. So, um, you know, doing routine, like, uh, for diabetics, sometimes they get bleeds inside the eye and retina surgeons will basically take out the jelly. You don't need the jelly. You need the jellies from embryonic stuff. Really? Yeah. Oh, so, so you just, people walking around, no jelly in the eye. As we get older, we lose our jelly. The jelly uh, liquefies anyway. Huh. So you don't really need the jelly. Okay. That's not the problem. We need the retina to be attached. <laughs> but if, if the retina is attached, as in this patient, retina is intact, but the globe is split, once you repair the globe, is there a chance that he'll get uh, his sight back? Well, the, the retina in this particular patient was not attached. Oh. It was just still in the eye, but it was all disorganized and detached. Okay. Um, but you know, the retina is, is nerve, nerve tissue, and so if it gets detached from its underlying blood supply and, and uh, nerves and everything, there's permanent visual loss, um, even if you reattach it. Okay. So, but in this patient, the retina is basically clumped into a ball. So let's talk about orbital fractures, because uh, it's, it is admittedly very confusing to me. I see orbital fracture, and sometimes we do something about it. Sometimes the ophthalmologist will run in and take the patient to the OR and do something about it. <laughs> and sometimes I, it's kind of a half-hearted, it's fine, they can see me next week. Yeah. Where, where is the line? What do I need to, to know about yeah. this? Decision? So you're asking me a, a little dangerous question here because there, there's a general uh, uh, disagreement um, between ophthalmologists and potentially other services as to the timing of orbital wall fracture repair. And, you know, as a lot of people who are not traumatologists will, will, will kind of assume is that everything is like has to be done now type of thing. And, and in reality, for a lot of these fractures, as ophthalmologists, um, advocating waiting for a week or two after the swelling goes down, if it's like an isolated wall fracture, Sometimes things just resolve on their own. They never need to have surgery. And so ophthalmologists, if, if you look at anybody who does facial trauma, ophthalmologists are going to be the ones that will say you can wait on many of these cases. Now, it's dangerous because other services will say, well, that's not how we do it, and we, can, we do it right now, we'll fix it. 
likely true, but the question is, did they have to be fixed? Or would they have been okay if they had not been fixed? Now, the exception to that, there are always exceptions. There are definitely exceptions for adults, but the exception is an entrapped uh, rectus muscle in a kid, okay? So let's say they have a floor fracture, a kid had blunt trauma floor fracture, and the inferior rectus muscle is entrapped in okay. that fracture. So, you know, trying to move that muscle can invoke the, uh, the cardiac reflex. In the really? Cardiac. Yeah. Yeah, so you actually have, that. that is an emergency. So that's when you'll see the ophthalmologist coming right in, taking the patient to the OR to release that trapped muscle. Now, on exam, how does that appear? What kind of gaze palsy would that... But they won't be able to look up. Okay. And they'll say it hurts a lot when they try to move up. Oh, it actually yeah. hurts? Yes. Okay. And you'll be able to see it on the CT scan. Okay. That there's an entrapped muscle. Wow, that's fascinating. I genuinely had never heard about the, the uh, bradycardia. Yeah, yeah. I thought you were going to tell me you didn't hear about the... Uh, the uh, disagreement that we sometimes no, have. I I always assume for any given surgery, <laughs> there's a disagreement between all the services who take care of it. Right. Trust me, as as a vascular surgeon, I'm very familiar with IR saying how to do something. We us saying go. how to do something. There you go. Um, is there such a thing as damage control ocular surgery? Uh, perhaps a lateral canthotomy is an example. Um, what would the definitive surgery be for the retrobulbar hemorrhage? Well, at the time, it is uh, lateral canthotomy, mm-hmm. but it is damage control because afterwards you may need to go back and fix what you cut. Okay. Um, but it is it is the definitive technique to fix that because you can't otherwise evacuate the or decrease the pressure and evacuate the hemorrhage. What's the functional deficit of, of the canthotomy? I never even thought about yeah, that. Yeah, sometimes you don't have to replace it. Okay. it. It's a suspensory ligament that holds the eyeball to the side wall. Ah. Um, I am in general a fan of anything that holds the eyeball inside the skull. <laughs> it seems to be okay. I don't know many people that actually end up needing to have too much stuff done, except when you cut down, sometimes you, you cosmetically it may look a little bit different with the lids. So when I was preparing for this, um, I read a number of case reports about patients who were transferred to various centers for very complex uh, reconstructions. Um, and in doing that, I realized that for a field that does not have that many practitioners, you have, as you said, nine subspecialties. And there aren't that many centers which have an ophthalmologist there at all on staff. So it doesn't sound like it's that unusual for someone to need to fly across country to have the right person take care of their problem. And they have the luxury of time from what it sounds like. So what can we expect the general ophthalmologist on call to be able to take care of, not not expectations like standards to hold them to, but when can I look at something and think, oh, this is going to need to go to Mayo or Washington University or Maryland? Well, I, so in general, for like a ruptured globe, for, for instance, um, actually specifically because it's different than an orbital wall fracture, but for a ruptured globe, any surgical ophthalmologist, and I say that because some, some people declare they're not going to operate, very few, but some after residency declared they're not going to operate. Any surgical ophthalmologist should be able to handle a rupture globe. It is part of the competencies of residency, and we do it. The issue is that few people, few general ophthalmologists like to do rupture globes. Who really wants to be called in the middle of the night besides a trauma surgeon like yourself? Um, and so it's easy for them to refer to a, uh, an academic a tertiary care institution um, any of these traumas. And that's the reality of, of what happens. If you, if you look at uh, community hospitals now, more and more 
Um, ophthalmology is not staffing, or they'll staff, and then if there's something emergent like this, they'll send it uh, to the nearest academic center. So does it have to go? No. Is it within their realm to be able to fix it? Probably, but some people just don't want to do it, which is fine. Yeah, this is this is not something that is certainly limited to ophthalmology. Trust me. <laughs> I think every field has it, and I, I think that as long as your patients are getting uh, the care they need when they need it, mm-hmm. then I think it's fine. It's acceptable. Yeah. Now, fractures are a little bit different because it's not just ophthalmology, right? OMFS, ODO, um, uh, plastic surgery, they all have the ability to do these orbital wall fractures. So I think that any given hospital might have a face team. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that um, it's probably less common to be sent in, although with multi-phase trauma, I'm sure here we see a lot of it. All right, so let's, let's say that we have an orbital wall fracture that has been repaired. The patient is still inpatient. Um, the general trauma team is rounding on the patient. We are doing everything that ophthalmology told us needs to be done. What are the things we need to look out for in the medium term while they're still in-house? What, what can go wrong? Well, probably the first thing that went wrong is that ophthalmology is the primary service. <laughs> we don't try to keep our patients in-house. <laughs> you know, and if we're doing this as an outpatient like we usually do, then there is in-and-out surgery. It's not, it's not overnight stay. For globes, because they usually happen in the middle of the night, we hold them over till the next morning in mm-hmm. short stay, but otherwise we, we don't try to admit So this. even a ruptured globe repair? If it happens like in the morning, um, I would be okay to, uh, uh, discharging them in the afternoon with a long stay in the PACU. Okay, wow. <laughs> if there's nothing else, just a Well, globe. let's say there is something else. It's my patient. You operated and you repaired the globe, but I'm taking care of, I don't know, I'm watching a spleen lack or sure, something like that. Sure, sure, yeah. Um, Post-operative complications? Well, you can have um, dehiscence of the wound, right? Um, you can have, uh, if it's a trauma case, they can have a late retrobulbar hemorrhage and they can bleed afterwards and they're pushing the globe that you just sewed together, pushing it forward and making it risk for popping. Infection is probably one of the biggest ones like with anything else. Mm-hmm. Any of these things, the patients will say they have pain. The problem is they had pain to begin with and so it's very, very hard. And you know, for this, I would not expect a hospital service to be able to look into the eye and say, oh, there's an infection or oh, there's something. This is where you're going to have to call us back in. Right. Yeah. Okay. Fair that enough. definitely falls in it. It's not your job. <laughs> <laughs> so is there ophthorehab? Is there ophthotherapy? Um, like to um, restore vision. Yes. To make vision better. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, because... Trauma to the eye can cause trauma to lots of different parts of the eye. And our primary job at that moment is to sew it back together. Okay, so we sew it back together, and let's say they have a cataract that developed because of the trauma and the lens is still there. Or sometimes after the eye is like knocked open, the lens is like extruded, expelled, right? And so now there's no lens. So a secondary procedure to help rehab would be to either do the cataract surgery or to sew in a secondary lens to give them a lens in the eye, right? Sometimes a laceration goes across the cornea mm. and we sew it together. And then later on, after everything's healed, we need to do a corneal transplant to get rid of that big area, that scar, so that they can see. And so then I would call that rehab, I guess. Wow. Yeah. This has been incredibly educational. 
Um, and they'll go to different subspecialties within ophthalmology to get this rehab. Oh wow! <laughs> <laughs> so what are the what are the subspecialties? You said nine. Can you there name them all? Can I name them? Well, cornea is the most important. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing more important than the cornea. You know, the retina folks will argue because the retina folks sometimes we, we say is like the cardiothoracic people of general surgeons, right? Because they they think they if without them like nothing would ever happen, right? Um, Okay, true. Without the retina, you can't see. However, without the cornea being clear, they can't see to be able to operate on the retina. <laughs> so, <laughs> so go ahead and laugh at us and call us the dust cover and the window washers, but, you know... If we just left the window dirty, you wouldn't be doing any surgery. I'm sorry. Uh, the idea of a street rumble between the cornea <laughs> specialist and the retina specialist oh, yeah. is it, very entertaining. It, it, it happens all the time. <laughs> yes. And maybe we joke a little harder because they make five times what we do, but that's okay. <laughs> um, so there's retina, there's glau- uh, cornea, there's glaucoma, there's pediatric ophthalmology, there's neuro-ophthalmology, there's um, uh, uveitis. There's oculopathology. Oh boy, I got two more. So oculopathology is a subspecialty of ophthalmology, not of pathology. It could be of both. Oh. Yes. Okay. You can do an oculopathology fellowship. Okay. Yeah. And then there's oculoplastics. And there's oculoplastics, sorry. And there's got to be one more. And it's not trauma. <laughs> I hope no ophthalmologists are listening. <laughs> Well, so, refractive surgery, you could say, is a subspecialty, although a lot of cornea people claim it as their own. Really? Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. That sounds like a totally separate discussion from trauma, but a fascinating one. Complete opposite end of the spectrum. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we usually close out with a couple of lighthearted questions, and you and I became friends the way a lot of surgeons become friends, which is we were in the surgeon's lounge at the same time, <laughs> bemoaning our case being delayed. Yeah. But also because uh, you drive a pretty amazing car. Why don't you tell us about it? My amazing car. Well, you're talking about my RS4? I am. My RS4. I love my RS4. My RS4 is 12 years old because it was only brought to the U.S. for two years in 07 and 08. It has an amazing engine, the engine from the R8, with a six-speed manual, which you, know, you can't get. Audi, I don't think Audi makes six speeds in the U.S. anymore. Um, and the manual is very important to you. I'm a purist, I guess. Okay. <laughs> it's got to be the manual. <laughs> and it is 12 years old. I have 150,000 miles on it. Every time I bring it in, it's four figures to fix something or another. But it is a fantastic car. <laughs> <laughs> I will take anybody in that car, and I will race anybody in that car. Well, all right. Um, I know that that is actually a challenge that I can't take you up on because I am not a good driver at speed. <laughs> Um, and finally, uh, is a hot dog a sandwich? Oh, you know, my middle child asked me that really? last week. He did. <laughs> he asked me that, to which I said yes. Okay. And then he said, is cereal soup? So I ask you, is cereal soup? I'm going to say yes. <laughs> and it's not going to be because of the mixed media nature. It's going to be because soup is one of my favorite foods. And cereal is also one of my favorite foods, and it just makes my preferences a lot easier to organize in my head. 
<laughs> if I lump them both as soups and just say, I like soups, therefore, that's why I like cereal. Well, hot dog to me is a sandwich because a hot dog kind of looks like a, a sub, right? Yeah. Okay, and you call them sub sandwiches. Yeah. Okay, so it's a sandwich. Okay. <laughs> I mean, it also looks like coaxial cable in that sense. Yeah, but you can take one piece of bread and right. an open-faced sandwich and fold it in half. It's still a sandwich. That's true. Okay. It is. And guess what? We don't have hot dog buns at our house. We have bread. Everybody has it on a piece of bread and you fold it in half yourself. And your kids are okay with that? Kids grew up like that. Occasionally we'll have hot dog buns. They'll be like, oh, we have hot dog buns. (laughs) (laughs) High times in the Cheng household. Oh, you're living like a retinal specialist today. Oh, yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for talking to us. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. It's been highly educational. Um, And yeah. We'll probably have you back at some point to talk about more ocular trauma in the future. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye.